If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations, all at hoyfulproductions.com. Have you done podcasts before? No, I've. This will be my first. Oh, this will be popping your cherry, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've gotten a, a lot of inquiries, um, but haven't done a, a few because of uh, for fear of uh, snagging Amazon. Because a lot of the people who want us to talk are like really deep into the the Kindle scene and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But no, this will be my first. Well, you can, and this is a free form. There's this isn't journalism, so you can say whatever the hell you want. And you can use whatever language you want to. So <laughs> just relax and enjoy yourself. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting one for me just because um, usually typically the people I have on, I have at least a general idea about the people. I don't know really anything about you. The main reason I'm having you on is just because I love what you made. And I, I just want to expose people to it because I think you guys have made something pretty fantastic. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, we definitely didn't uh, get a, a whole lot of rapport building ahead of time, but um, hopefully that'll, that won't uh, affect the conversation anyway. It all shakes itself out eventually, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just like two people having a drink for the first time. Um, right. Yeah, so I, w- I mean, uh, I, I know a little bit about you. I just, I was able to find you on LinkedIn and get a little bit on your background and so forth, but uh, I guess maybe if I, if, for people that aren't listening, maybe we should just talk about what Readwise is so that the rest of the conversation makes sense to them. Because obviously you and I know what it is. <laughs> sure. Um, so Readwise is web-based software that helps you remember and use significantly more of what you read. Um, specifically when you're reading nonfiction or reading for some purpose other than entertainment. Um, and the way we do this right now is we leverage uh, highlights that you can take while you're reading uh, digital material, be it an ebook on Kindle or an ebook in iBooks or various articles that you might read using a, a read it later app like Instapaper or a web annotation uh, tool like Highly. Um, and what we do with those highlights is a lot of people uh, take highlights while they read using those mediums, uh, but they never go back and revisit those highlights. So what we do specifically, our core value prop is we make it easy for people to go back and consistently review uh, those highlights. And by definition, a highlight is something that um, someone thought was insightful or interesting or might be useful some, somewhere down the road. Um, and we resurface that. And we do that in a variety of ways, but the flagship uh, way in which we do that is through a daily email. So if you read on Kindle and you have 5,000 highlights from the past 100 books you read, uh, if you sign up for Readwise, we'll make it easy for you to get those highlights into Readwise. And then thereafter, 
you'll wake up each morning with an email with an assortment of, of highlights from those books. And what that does is it helps you reconnect with um, ideas that you came across while reading uh, that you found interesting and hopefully find new opportunities to either learn them better, what we call uh, lasting insight, or to actually put them into use in your life, what we call uh, meaningful action. Um, in addition to the email, we also have a fully featured web application where you can go and do things with the highlights. The email is a very passive medium. The only thing you can do with it is read it, essentially. Uh, so if you want to do more, such as take notes and attach them to each highlight or tag the highlights um, so you can start to organize and categorize, uh, share the highlights through Twitter or Facebook or email, um, favorite the highlights, discard the highlights, you can do that all on the web application. And in 2019, we'll also be developing a fully native mobile app for iOS and Android. Uh, we don't currently have that, but we will have that soon. Um, and then the other feature that the web app and the mobile app uh, will soon get into is an area we're very excited about, um, which gets back to kind of the original vision for Readwise, which we haven't yet uh, fully um, acted on. Uh, but we'll getting it, be getting into much more powerful uh, retention and space repetition features for your highlights. So we'll give users a lot more control over which highlights they see and when, as well as strengthen their memories of those highlights so they become even more useful in their life. And that'll only be available on the web app or the mobile app because the email is just not the right uh, format for that. Yeah, and I think what's really important, I'm, I'm a big user of this. I pay for the premium for people listening. If you follow me on Instagram and you see my stories every day, I have quotes. Those are coming out of my daily emails from Readwise. Those are highlights from books that I've read over the years. And I'm getting those from, from Readwise every morning and I'm pulling my favorite one and sharing it with you guys. Um, but what's really important, I think, too, that people might not understand is they think, uh, you, you know, like, okay, you've collected these quotes and you're spitting them out at people every day. Like, it's just random. Um, but there's actually process put behind when these things are being put in front of you. You know, it's not just, here's five quotes from the last book you read. They're not clumped together like that. And they're not just completely um, crazy all over the place. There is some logic to how they are. And then um, if they choose the feature, there's also the last one, which is the suggested, which I've found some books that I've loved from suggestions you guys have given me from stuff that I've read. So there's a lot of, uh, I, I would imagine, I guess maybe that's a technical question. Is there a ton of machine learning going on behind here, going through these quotes or? Right. So you bring up uh, two uh, independent features. The first one is how we actually choose the highlights to show, show you. We call that our resurfacing algorithm. That's just our fancy internal name. Um, and that's continuously getting better over time. Uh, when we first started, it was more or less random. Uh, then we discovered that there were some rules that we could uh, add to this algorithm to filter out really bad highlights. Uh, because when people start highlighting, um, they, they're really bad highlighters uh, because they've never had the feedback loop of taking a highlight and then seeing it again a month, six months, or a year later. Um, and being able to uh, have the feedback of knowing if that highlight they took was intelligible or not to their future self. So one very common pattern we see in our users, and this is extremely gratifying for us as creators, is uh, once people start using Readwise, their, their highlighting habit changes. And they start to think in terms of their future self. And for example, when I'm taking a highlight, I'll be asking myself, like, 
will I be able to interpret this a year from now? Um, so when a lot of people start highlighting, they, they, they highlight phrases or fragments, um, which are completely unintelligible, and it causes a lot of frustration when people <laughs> see those. So the first thing our algorithm did was eliminated uh, those, those bad highlights uh, because people complained a lot when they, when they saw unintelligible or illegible highlights. Um, and now what we're doing over time is we're taking our resurfacing algorithm and making it uh, what we call intelligent, intelligent resurfacing. Um, and we, we're experimenting with ways to do that better, but we can do it better by um, just kind of like Spotify's uh, Discover Weekly. We can sense what uh, books you're reading by what's, what you're synchronizing um, with Readwise or what articles you're reading, what you're tagging, uh, what you're favoriting, what you're sharing. Um, and a big new feature that's soon going to come out on the web app and the mobile app is providing the user the ability to give Readwise feedback. This is completely optional, but you can give feedback on the highlight and say, you know, I want to see this highlight again soon, or I want to see this highlight again someday, or I want to see this highlight again later or never. Um, and that'll, that'll enable the user to, to uh, even more precisely uh, tell Readwise, like, I really like this highlight. It's a high-quality highlight. I want to see it again. Or, you know, this highlight could be useful, but I don't know how useful it is right now. So just show it to me again later in the future some random time. I think what's, what, for example, I've, I'm exactly the person you described that when I first started highlighting, it was in paper books. So you never had to worry about context. You know, if, if you highlight part of a sentence, well, the other part of the sentence is still there. So you can just scan your eyes over and you have it. But then uh, as you start moving things out of books and, I, and especially in the era of ebooks, you're, you're getting things in clips. If for people who use Goodreads, which is, um, you have your highlights, which is, is synchronized with your Kindle highlights now, since they own Goodreads. Um, you start seeing, like, for example, what I do is um, I have not only the highlights of things that I think are important, but if somebody mentions a book I want to read in another book, I highlight that. But most people don't understand that if I take, you know, when you go into your highlights, you have the option in Goodreads for public and non-public. And uh, for example, you know, if you make a note of something that's personal in a book, you don't want everybody that follows you on Goodreads to be able to see that. So you turn the privacy off of that. Well, those things don't synchronize over to Readwise, but I didn't realize that at first. <laughs> so I would get just like book titles as a highlight at first. And I'm like, oh, I, I have to figure out why that's doing that. It was me. But now you, your algorithm is also making up for that so that people don't have to learn those things. I can't imagine like the amount of, of revising and rethinking that you're continually doing for something like, especially something that the, the whole purpose of is learning. Um, is this what you intended to do? Like, was this your, your purpose uh, with Readwise or has it taken on a life of its own? No, it, it definitely was our purpose. Um, the ideal we strive for, I, I forgot to mention this with the resurfacing algorithm, is uh, the ideal, we call it the right highlight at the right time. Um, obviously, that's a pretty lofty goal, but that's what we're striving towards in every incremental percentage point improvement we can get there. Kind of like Netflix, you know, improving their recommendation engine of what movie or show to watch by 1% has a dramatic impact on user engagement. You know, we kind of view our algorithm as the same. So I have 20,000 highlights, right? And what we're trying to do is trying to find like which 
which five to 10 highlights per day are going to be most relevant and interesting, insightful to me on this given day. Um, and that's what we're working towards. And one, another powerful thing that's also maybe people don't understand as well. If you are a Kindle user and you have Kindle highlights, um, one of the things that sucks about the way that Kindle functions right now is if you want to search for something, you have to go into each individual book and search. So say, say you've, you've highlighted, you know, like, uh, 2000 or 20,000 highlights and you're looking for everything related to fishing. Well, you got, you got to know what books to go into, but with Readwise, you can go in and just search for the word fishing and it's going to pull it up across all of your books. And what's also amazing too, um, for people like me that started out with iBooks and realized that Kindle was better over the years, I have highlights across both platforms and I can search across those. It's, I mean, for somebody like me, people that listen to the show know I'm, I'm a book nerd. I love reading. I'm always highlighting. I'm looking through my highlights. I was the guy who used to import all the highlights into Evernote, thinking that I was going to reread them later and never did. When, when I got the email, it, for people listening don't know this, I found Readwise through, I'm sure as many people did, through Tim Ferriss sharing it on his uh, Five Bullet Friday, which I'm sure blew things up for you guys. But for me, it was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I've been looking for for years. I, what was what was that like when that email went through? Did you guys just get an explosion of follows? Yeah, that was a, a fun day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in uh, San Francisco, so in Pacific time zone. I guess he sent that email to go out at uh, 6 a.m. Eastern, which would have been 3 a.m. Pacific. <laughs> and I, I remember, I don't know why I woke up, but I woke up at 4 a.m. And I guess my phone was just face up and the light was on in my bedroom and the light was just constant and my phone was just getting flooded with emails that said 500 error um which is the error we give off when the server goes down oh, no. and i was like oh boy i'm like and we we ran some calculations once we actually posted a blog article about this like what are the most read books on readwise and all four books that tim ferris has read are in our top 50 like so by a wide margin he is the most uh, well-read author on our platform. So wow. for a long time, we've known that someday Tim Ferriss could be instrumental in our growth. You know, he's like the uh, apex influencer for our particular product and, and reaches, you know, our users. Um, so I was like, oh, is this it? Like, <laughs> has it finally happened? And I went to my laptop and my boxers and opened it up scrolled through my 500 errors until I got to the five bullet Friday and I was like, Oh, here it is. Um, and he had mentioned it. So yeah, that was a, that was a really fun day. Uh, in less than one day, we more than doubled our user base. And that includes having our server down for two to three hours. Um, I'm not the technical founder on this team. My co-founder Tristan as uh, a technical founder. And of course <laughs> that day was the exact day that he left San Francisco because we'd spent the week together here. Um, realigning what we were going to work on for the next quarter. Um, and he was super jet lagged and like sleeping in, in Toronto with his face mask and earplugs on. So I had to uh, put out this dumpster fire myself um, until he woke up at like 1 PM that afternoon. But fortunately it all worked out. That was, that was a great day. Obviously, <laughs> I can't even imagine because uh, I, I don't have servers or anything to worry about on my end, but Tim Ferriss has retweeted me once and it nuked my phone. Like my, my phone just 
notification, 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 notification. Like my phone wouldn't stop blinking. It's just incredible. I, I mean, I, uh, there's a video. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't remember who it was, but there was a celebrity that had accidentally left on their notifications. I think it was for Instagram. And it was like this 30-minute video. It went viral a couple years ago of this, what it looks like to be a celebrity and get notifications. And the phone just looked like it was glitching out because it couldn't even handle all the notifications. Yeah, I think maybe we were a few steps below that, but it was it was still uh, exciting nonetheless. And all the users who attempted to sign up but hit that error were very forgiving and understanding, I guess, because um, they recognized the Tim Ferriss effect. Yeah, I'm sure he's done it many times before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's a, especially valuable to you guys because you know you offer a a premium level as well. So that actually can, can affect your, your bottom line. Whereas, you know, with, with a lot of these things, you know, like uh, free, there's so much free software out there, so much free software that I can't even imagine, you know, like, okay, you guys are getting attention now, but a lot of these guys are just maybe hoping to be acquired. What, what, like, what's your guys' long-term plan? Are you hoping that maybe Amazon goes one day, like we want to buy you and swallow you up? Or are you, are you hoping to stay independent? Uh, yeah. So, we made the decision back in May of last year, 2018, um, to bootstrap Readwise as opposed to uh, seek venture capital funding. Venture capital funding, uh, and if you are on Twitter or follow the tech scene, uh, there's a a bit of a debate going on um, where people are rejecting VC and bootstrapping, and it gets very dogmatic. Uh, we we don't feel necessarily so dogmatic. We just approach the question uh, from the perspective of, you know, what is best for the company? And when we thought about it for a long time, we decided that it would be best to bootstrap uh, Readwise as opposed to raise money for uh, a series of reasons. We actually wrote a a blog article about this, but the the reasons are relatively simple. Uh, First of all, uh, when you look at the quote-unquote reading tech landscape, uh, it's somewhat of a graveyard. Uh, there haven't been many successful reading text startups. The most successful, arguably, would have been Goodreads. And they were acquired by Amazon several years ago for an undisclosed amount. So um, hard to judge how big of a success, but they certainly didn't go under and they still exist to this day. And then you have a series of you know really good startups that just couldn't make it because they couldn't um, keep up with the pace of growth that they had to post for um, venture capital groups like Findings or Read Mill or Oyster. Um, so we decided that uh, venture capital would not be good for us because it would require us to focus on growing too soon and growing within a market that is truly niche. Like we think we can build a nice eight-figure or maybe even nine-figure business when it comes to you know nonfiction power readers. But it's never going to be the market size of a Facebook or an Airbnb or something like that. So the market isn't very attractive to venture capital. Um, we would have to post growth, which would cause us to uh, stop our kind of militant focus on readers like you and me um, that are just you know kind of outliers when it comes to readers. Keep in mind, half of Americans, half of literate Americans, don't even read a book per year, wow. right? Um, <laughs> That's terrifying. You just gave me chills. 
Yeah. So we, we didn't want to lose our core focus on power readers. We didn't want to focus on growth over products. And then finally, um, the e-reading space is dominated by uh, a company that you might call a juggernaut that you typically don't win if you uh, go march out onto the open battlefield and run against. Uh, so we also wanted to avoid that. Um, so we decided to bootstrap, which means that um, we decided to charge for the product as opposed to just offering it for free. Um, obviously, this slows down our growth in terms of, of users, but it means that we've started to generate revenues and then we can reinvest those revenues back into the company. Um, and hopefully, we'll soon achieve a, a very sustainable point that will enable us to work on uh, Readwise into the long term on our terms. You know, that, that brings up something that I've talked about on my other podcast with my co-host, but I don't think it's ever come up on this show before. Is I think that, well, I guess I'm just asking for your perspective on this, so I shouldn't pre- pre- present it in that way. But uh, what do you think about this? When I, I see that the last maybe 10, 15 years, 15 years might be stretching a little bit, everything has been presented as free. You know, Facebook, um, every, everything that we know that's, that's grown and become explosive, it, it was presented as this free thing. You know, free Gmail was free. You know, they just put the, the Gmail thing in the um, signature so that people knew about it. And then all of a sudden, all these companies, they, they, get, they, get, they get huge. And now there's all these other companies that are trying to follow the same path, but they can't, like you said, because, you know, the Amazons are already there. The, the Facebooks are already there and you have to dethrone those to get up there. So like this era of free seems like it, it's over with, you know, like this, this concession of like, well, we're going to get this free and then they're going to get what they want because they'll be huge. And then maybe people just have to start accepting the fact that we have to go back to the way we did everything for some of us are the rest of our lives, which was paying for things that we wanted that gave us value. I think that's the, I mean, that seems like that's the future of tech right now. It certainly feels that way. I think there's been a realization that there is no such thing as free, right? Like when you get to use Google products or Facebook products for free, you're exchanging something, just not money, your attention for use of those products. And I think people are now realizing that, hey, maybe this isn't always the trade I want to make. Certainly in some cases it might be, but in others, they might just want to. Uh, pay with cash as opposed to, you know, subversive techniques that capture their attention instead. It seems like people are slowly becoming less and less comfortable with the idea of using their data as a commodity. You know, like I'm paying for this with my data. You know, Google is getting better. Why? Because I give them my data. Um, especially after all the stuff that happened with Facebook in the last year, where and like there's there's been arguments in the past, um, especially people like... Um, Ben Thompson from Strategery um, and uh, Exponent is his podcast. He he said for a long time, he's like, no, Facebook would never do these things because it, it would destroy their business and they would never want to do something that would destroy their business. So their own self-interest would keep them from doing that. And then we find out that they have been doing it. And so the, the people are becoming less and less comfortable with that. And I think that, uh, I, I mean, for me, I'm I'm far more comfortable giving somebody $5 and letting them be able to see everywhere I go during the day. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I certainly am in the same boat. And, uh, you know, from our perspective, charging for the product uh, really filters for people who truly love our product. 
And then that enables us to build a better product because now we're, we're not having to filter through all this noise all the time. Um, and we can really focus on our core users and make sure that we're serving their needs better and better. So I think it's a virtuous cycle when you get it going the right way. Yeah, it's got to give you a better better view of active users. You know, like people are paying you. Like these people are using it because I know because they're paying. It's a pretty much a 90% chance if somebody's paying for something monthly, they're using it. Whereas a lot of these free services, I remember before you would see things and they, well, theoretically, they have this many active users. I think it was uh, Spotify in the original days that they couldn't even figure out how many people were actually using their service because they were all using it for free. And that's, I mean, how do you build a business around something when you can't even see what your actual, what your actual user base is? That's just baffling to me. Exactly. This, this is a very quick way to segment between users who love us and users who like us. Right. Um, and obviously in startups, you want to focus on the people who love you. Especially when you have, you know, a free tier um, or a free... A trial or something like that. You know, people sometimes we all we're all curious about things, and the only way you really know if you want something sometimes is to try it and play around with it. But that doesn't tell you anything about whether they're actually a user. And I, I imagined, well, let's see. You went you went to Wharton way before tech hit this really big boom. So I, I imagine you've been having to think on your feet about uh, learning how to deal with this world, um, especially when it comes to business as it's developing. I mean, a lot of us sitting at home, we see what's going on in the, in the tech world. You know, we see, especially in Silicon Valley, we see all the news and we think that, you know, everybody knows what they're doing, but in reality, everybody's been having to think like while they're balancing on a ball. I mean, do you, do you, have you felt that change as, uh, even in the short time that you've had Readwise, have you felt that change where the industry is continually shifting under your ground? I actually think, uh, you know, over the past 10 to 15 years, there's been um, huge developments in just startup lessons, like the amount of free content that's out there, very high quality content, helping people to think through how to start a business, um, how to start a startup and why to start a startup, um, how to think about product and making something that people actually want, as opposed to a lot of the businesses that came about in the dot-com bubble. Um, I think we've seen a huge uh, amount of progress in that arena where uh, people are getting better and better at uh, making things that people want and uh, not wasting their efforts on uh, things that are bad. Um, this also gets into kind of the, the whole lean startup movement as well. So... Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a good amount of um, people who are getting into industries and figuring out things on the fly. But I think there's a little bit more efficiency in terms of um, just really, really bad ideas getting filtered out up front. It seems like there's also a movement towards less and less towards this idea of every company going public and more and more companies going, no, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to stay in control and you know, I'm not trying to get to this size. I'm happy at this size. And I mean, do you think, especially in the tech world, do you think that that's a reality people have to face is, you know, you're not going to be a Facebook. You're going to be whatever size, this manageable size. And then you just have to learn to live in that, in that bubble size. Well, I think there are startups that are, you know, venture capital candidates. And I think the end game for those companies is still some sort of massive 
liquidity event, be it going public or being acquired. Um, I think VC targets moonshots um, that would ultimately go public, you know, that they're too big to be acquired. Um, so the Airbnbs and the, the Ubers and the WeWorks of the world. Um, and then there's this whole category of businesses that are still really solid businesses, kind of like Readwise, or it could be really solid businesses like Readwise, um, but are not really solid fits for venture capital. And you're definitely seeing a lot of people thinking about that space right now and thinking about, well, how do we help provide funding to those companies um, and see them succeed as well? It's like the the obvious things were covered and now people are slowly starting to realize, oh, there are there are niches that I can I can I can I can work in this in this niche, like you said, uh, digital reading. That's a niche. Unfortunately, reading itself is a niche in America right now, <laughs> which is I mean, the more and more you see things on television and people arguing about things that they don't even understand, the more you realize it's because we watch TV more than we read, probably, or you know we we spend more time on Facebook than we read. Is I mean. Is any of this what drove you to be a part of this? I mean, your love for reading, is that why you wanted to do this? Well, I don't think we're going to be able to um, influence what people consume. Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the more that people you know, stare at their phone and like banal social media or uh, watch TV... Uh, the more of the competitive edge it offers folks who can uh, wean themselves off of that and read books. Um, you know, the, the way I got started on this journey was I went on a year-long sabbatical with my girlfriend where I was reading at least one or two challenging books per week. Um, and I got frustrated that, you know, two or three months later, I could hardly remember a book I'd read. Um, I, I couldn't even summarize like the key points. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of wasted effort. So that's how I actually got started on this journey. Um, and I think to this day, we remain focused on catering to the needs of the power reader, uh, which no one really caters to, um, as opposed to the non-reader, which would be all those other uh, forms of media, or uh, Goodreads or Amazon, which are really focused on kind of the mass market fiction reader. Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember... Um that definitely happened to me with books, but I also remember there's a period of time, I think it was when when Netflix started first doing um, streaming. And I was like, oh, I can finally watch all of these foreign films that I've been wanting to see forever that I could never find at the video store. So I was at a point, I was watching like three movies a day. And then about a month into that, I realized, you know, somebody's like, so what movies have you seen? And I know I'd seen like 90, couldn't remember a single one. And it's it's this overload. We're just filling our head, but the, we've lost the reality that we have to, like you said, go back to things that we have to remind ourselves of things. You know, when we used to write things on paper, that was kind of how we drilled stuff in because it had to move through that process. And we've lost that, you know, it, it's convenient to be able to highlight in a Kindle. It is. And I'm glad I don't have to sit and write the whole sentence or paragraph that I like, but because of that convenience, I've lost that repetitiveness. I've lost that drilling in. And once again, I, I, I can't continue. I, I can't praise your product enough because it's really made that um, more valuable for me because I can I can get some of that back. You know, like I, I mentioned before, I would put this stuff in Evernote, um, but Evernote had no way to review and all of these things. So you're making it really easy for for this niche, 
and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it's going to grow. Um, you know, you have celebrities like um, Emma Watson, who's promoting reading. And I'm hoping that slowly that's going to have a resurge that, you know, just a few key people in a few companies in the right places doing the right things. And I, even though Amazon is this scary juggernaut in some way, they do contribute to that as well. And I'm hoping that that will help at least to some degree. Um, you know, not everybody's going to be a power reader, like you said, and that's good. Like you said, it, it will weed, it will weed out certain things. Um, you know, the people who really want to learn like that will still be the power readers, but that we can get some people out there thinking more. We've we've gone through so many decades where we we're trying to turn off our brains, and I feel like it's time to turn them back on. Um, I don't know about you, but the, the more <laughs> the more I avoid. Uh, social media, and the more I avoid the news every day, the happier I am as a human being. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think that's probably a, a universal maxim that people will slowly come to appreciate. It's funny that you mentioned um, that you used to remember things by writing. Uh, there's a pretty famous quote from Socrates going way back uh, about how he was nervous about the advent of literacy and everyone learning how to write. And he feared that if everyone learned how to write, they would write things down uh, rather than committing them to memory and it would corrupt their memories. <laughs> uh, there, there's just this, uh, this constant uh, fear that new technology is going to um, destroy our minds in some way. I think, it's, I think technology over time be becomes external scaffolding for the mind. It makes us better, but uh, you have to know how to to work with the technology, right? Like, um, I don't know if you ever saw this meme, but you know when people were just starting to complain about everybody holding cell phones in their hand, you know, saying, "Oh, we're all holding phones and we're not interacting with each other." There was this photo that went around of like the New York City subway at like turn of the century, and everybody's got their head buried in a newspaper. <laughs> it doesn't change in some way. We're all trying to to find ways to connect with each other, but we're all trying to hide from each other at the same time and bury our head in things. I think, like you said, it's just, it's a cycle that continues. And you know, there's always something new coming like VR right now. VR in a way, it's, it's very terrifying. But I think the thing that's terrifying about these new technologies is not that what we think it is, that it's going to destroy the human mind. It's It's terrifying because we can't conceptualize how our day-to-day -day life is going to change. You know, like, uh, did you see Ready Player One, the movie, or read the book? Yeah, I actually uh, listened to the book. I love to listen to fiction um, as, and read nonfiction. And that was narrated by Will Wheaton. It was really enjoyable <laughs> on, a, on a road trip. And I, I mean, that's a great example right there, you know, where people are like, oh, we're going to create our own worlds. And then, you know, what's, what's going to become of this world? It's just going to be like like the stacks, you know, just the the gross, disgusting, you know, dirty real world that nobody wants to be in or like the parts in the matrix when they pop out of the matrix and it's just, everything is gray and concrete and we're just, we don't, we can't conceptualize it. So we, I think we, a lot of us, we lean into fear and I think it's healthy. I think that's healthy um, because there's also, you know, people, uh, there's a lot of technologists out there like Ray Kurzweil um, that are all, so positive about technology that they that they're blind to some of the dangers, and I think we we need a mix of the two. You know, we need a little bit of caution. Um, what are your feelings on that? Well, to bring it back to Readwise, this is actually one of the biggest challenges we face long term. Um, it's it 
And contained in every challenge is an opportunity if you figure it out. Uh, but approximately 50% of all book sales, this includes both print and digital, are nonfiction and the other 50% are fiction. Uh, but when you look at ebooks, that stat gets wildly skewed and it's 90% of ebook sales are fiction and only 10% are nonfiction. Wow. So what this means is that people who read nonfiction have not yet really adopted digital technology and mass. In other words, they're reading paper books most of the time. Um, and this, you know, obviously at a certain point, we're going to have uh, exhausted the market of existing uh, Kindle or iBooks or other e-readers. And we're going to have to now start convincing people who are attached to physical books to switch over uh, to e-books. And for you and me, that seems easy because once you've you know read ebooks and you've gotten used to all the benefits of it, you know highlighting, taking notes, looking up words on the fly, instantly delivering a book, you know as opposed to waiting for uh, UPS to come knock at the door, um, a lot of those benefits. Um, but a lot of people are very aesthetically attached to physical books. Um, it, it kind of goes back to the same nostalgia and fear of fear of the future and fear of technology. Um, and it's, it's kind of like an irrational attachment. I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just mean that it's not like a, a rational cost-benefit analysis. And so that's something that we're, we're really going to have to work through over the next few years. Um, one of our hypotheses is that... Um, have you ever heard Peter Thiel's argument that Something ha something new has to be ten times better, or an order of magnitude better than what it's replacing to get people to switch. Yeah. Just to, so our hypothesis is that um, ebooks to date have basically just moved words on a page to words on a screen, um, but haven't really taken advantage of the technology to do more than that, and therefore they're not truly ten times better for our type of reader. And therefore, there's been no reason for them to switch. And we're trying to change that equation. It's effectively, hopefully, uh, create a whole new market in the ebook space, in the e-reading space for these um, nonfiction readers. You remind me of something, actually. It was maybe five, six, seven years ago. Um, I ran across this thing, and it was a, a conceptual idea. I think it was about the time that... Uh, it's funny how time goes so quickly with technology. You can't remember how long ago it actually was. It might have been about the time that I was just starting to get into to ebooks, um, and maybe uh, Apple Books had just come out, which would have been iBooks then. Um, but there was this concept of these. There was three um, ebook softwares, and uh, I can't remember the name of all three of them. One of them was called Willie. Um, one of them was called Alice, and one of them was uh, a third thing. I can't remember. And it was this concept of the ebook that uh, made it more interactive. Like it really, I can't even remember what the details were. I just remember watching this thing and having my mind blown going, whoa, that takes a book, not just reading, but it takes a book to the next level. And I never saw anything come of that project. And I think you're definitely right that there's, there's this room for, for these things to become more explosive, more than just, you know, like uh, I think the furthest we've seen is, um, in iBooks, they've, they've done some books where you can embed a video file into the book. That's not really, like you said, that's not 10 times more impressive. That's maybe 1.5% uh, more, more interesting. And 
Um, also going back to that idea, you know, I was thinking while you're saying that a lot of people, when we look at the future, we're thinking um, everything is binary. It's black or white, right? Oh, well, if, if books are, if uh, TV is successful, then radio is going to be gone. Nope. It's not what happened. We just had both. You know, if, if the internet comes around, newspapers are going to die. Kind of look like that at first, but New York Times is still around. Washington Post is still around. Um, it, what we end up with is, is, is more of a mix of gray in the long run. We don't end up with one or the other. You know, like I look at my room right now. I've got my, my Kindle sitting on the desk in front of me. I've got the Kindle app on my iPhone because, to be honest, the, <laughs> the integration with Audible works better on that app than it does on their own device. And then I have a bookshelf with 300 books on it. You know, I have both. And, you know, for if you're a poetry reader, um, guess what? There's not a lot of poetry books in ebooks. So you're probably good. If you read a lot of poetry, you're still going to have paper books, um, art books. Art books suck in digital format. You want them physical. You want them on the shelf. There's always going to be something on that shelf. But, you know, like um, reading a book about uh, how to become more productive or a book about forensics, you know, all these, these really nitty-gritty nonfiction books, you don't need them in paper format. They work really great in ebook format. And I think that's what I think that's what we're gonna see is the thing where people go, that's something I wanted to read. It's not something I love, but it's something I want to read. It's gonna be majority of that's gonna be on their device. But the things they really love, the things that they want to hold and they want to bend the pages, then they'll have like 20, 30 books on a shelf. And I think that's that's a reasonable view of the future. Yeah, I certainly agree. Uh, we think there's a lot of innovation to be had on the on the reading side. Another way we we look at it is um, clearly we have software for writing, right? Word processors, but you can also write uh, by hand in a book or write on a typewriter. Uh, we writing is just one side of the other coin for reading, right? And we have nothing like a word processor for reading yet. Um, so we think that that's where the real uh, white space exists for technological innovation. Um, people are still going to read physical books and read newspapers, um, but there will be other forms of reading that are better suited to be augmented by technology, just like there are forms of writing uh, that it makes sense to use a word processor where you get all the benefits of, of saving and formatting. And, uh, I mean, the, the, the future list is endless. Um, that's, that's how we think about it. You know what I find surprising is that uh, Amazon and Apple, you know, I mean, they're obviously the two big players in this right now, Amazon being probably three times bigger than Apple, but either way. Um, neither, I think actually 10 times bigger. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but why, why, why haven't either of them leaned into OCR, into opto, opto, optical character recognition? You know, like it seems to me that it, we've, we've gone all of these, um, for people are... Um, well, you're a little bit younger than me, I think, but people about our age and, and older are used to writing on the book, writing in the margins, circling things. Um, but when we go into these formats, you know, we're highlighting with our finger. We have this Apple Pencil. We have this iPad. You know, why isn't this functioning like a PDF where I'm, I'm writing right in it? What I'm already comfortable with doing, make that transition easier for people who used to paper books, have the OCR on the other end, pull those out in the typewritten notes. Boom. Now you've got something that maybe is at least twice as good as it is now, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't have a great answer for Amazon. <laughs> the cynical 
uh, hypothesis would be that they effectively have a monopoly on this space. Right. And monopolists are not incentivized to rock the boat and innovate. Um, for Apple, I don't really know why they haven't gone that direction with Apple Books and, and Pencil. That would definitely be very interesting. I know there is some experimentation on that frontier. Uh, for example, there's an e-ink tablet out there called Remarkable, uh, which has the uh, optical, optical character recognition and handwriting recognition, enabling you to take notes that way, uh, which is pretty neat. Uh, it's kind of a, a hacker's dream. Yeah, it's, I've seen that on uh, Instagram, actually. They've been advertising that in my feed. They've got my number. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, should I spend $800 right now? It's really <laughs> well, it, it's, I, I definitely agree with you. Like, why Amazon hasn't got into it? I mean, as as much as the screen on the Kindle is nice, and it really is nice to read on it, and it feels better than reading on an iPad, everything else about a Kindle sucks. Um. Flipping the page, you know, takes four, sometimes four seconds. Um, turning the device on, you know, like all of the hardware inside of it is just slow and sluggish because they're cutting as many corners as they can. I, I definitely, I can see what you mean though, because it seems like they don't, they, they want to do the bare minimum when it comes to what they're doing. Because, I mean, why not? They're making a fortune. They have no incentive, like you said, which... It goes back to what we were saying, I think, in a way, for these smaller niche companies that are more um, bootstrapped like you guys or that have a plan on staying a specific size, that they can maybe hopefully start working towards some of these problems um, that other people don't have the incentive to do anymore. Yeah, I don't mean to uh, cast any aspersions on Amazon because I think they've done an incredible amount of innovation to push the whole e-reading and reading tech scene forward. I just think they're focused on their core user who happens to be um, a power reader of fiction and mass market um, as opposed to the nonfiction guys. So I think that's why the innovations that they're focused on are mainly based around that user, whereas we're trying to target uh, this, this reader who reads for any other purpose than entertainment, who's reading to get something out of reading, which we, we often call nonfiction reading but that's probably not the best label. You know, someone who's reading to learn something or to uh, do something in their life, those are the, the use cases that we are trying to aid with technology. That's a really good point, that the way that people read fiction and the way that they highlight fiction is completely different than they do, um, well, maybe like you said, for the purpose of whether they're doing it, they're highlighting something because, oh, that was nice, I enjoyed that, or I want to share that with somebody later. Or as I'm gonna, I'm I'm highlighting this for me. I want to see that again. I want to remember that. I, I I'm gonna make a note on this because I have an idea. This makes me want to do a project. It's a very different style of reading. I also wonder if a lot of the reason that they're on the Kindle, the proportion um, leans towards fiction, is also because you have a lot of these. Um, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an asshole, but you have all these really cheap Kindle books. Kindle, you know, like romance books and stuff that, you know, people write like 50, 60 of these a year and they just drop them in there and sell them for like 99 cents. So there's a proportion, a, a larger proportion of this cheap fiction that people devour. Um, so it's not even like that fiction is dominating on Kindle. It's the, like that kind of fiction is dominating. And, you know, less and less people are reading literature. Yeah, it's hard to uh, draw the arrow of causality there. 
did uh, the self-published uh, quick fiction come first and then the, uh, the reader followed or was it that kind of reader and then the, uh, the fiction came after? Yeah, you see a lot. But I agree. There is a, a lot of that. And you see a lot of it, well, maybe not so much now, but for a while you saw a lot of it with, with nonfiction too, where these people would, um, they would they'd use their blogs sort of as a testing ground. Like, okay, I wrote about this, wrote about this, wrote about this. This one did well. This one did well. So let me grab those ones that did well and staple them all together, put them in an ebook, drop it out, four bucks. Now I made my book for the year. And, you know, they're not really, maybe I'm coming from, maybe I'm being a, a old <laughs> fuddy-duddy here, but, you know, like it's, it's a lot of this where people aren't writing books. They're making books. You know, they're manufacturing books. They're not sitting down with, I want to understand this, and then I'm going to use the book to explore that. Like I just, um, I read this fantastic book by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's, it's really, the whole point of the book is to try to understand something that they see going on on college campuses. You know, what's going on? What are the causalities of it? And what can we do about it? And to me, like, especially for nonfiction, that's what a book is. That's, that's what writing a book is. It's an exploration. And I think we see a lot of people um, using the system instead of um, creating. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, that gets to another um, core pain point for our kind of reader, which is the idea of us selecting what to read. Even if you read a book per week uh, for the rest of your life, you're only going to read 3,000 books. Meanwhile, you know, one or two million books are being published per year. Uh, so you're going to have to use some sort of uh, system or some discretion in choosing what to read to make sure that you don't I mistakenly invest in a, in a poorly produced, not not well thought out book. Um, but that takes discipline on the reader's part, just like it takes discipline on the TV watcher's part to make sure that they're watching um, high quality content as opposed to just, uh, you know, pulp uh, reality television or something like that. Now that reminds me of something, actually. One, one function in the Kindle that I do think is innovative that they should actually expand more that I love is when you get that little light highlight underneath that tells you, you know, like a bunch of people have highlighted this sentence as well. Um, I think that's a very fantastic feature because sometimes it makes you pay attention to something that you might have breezed over in reading. Um, and I think they could really expand that in a way where, you know, like um, I'm just going to throw out random names, but uh, Joe Rogan and Kanye West read this book. They both highlighted this sentence, you know, really use names and recognition um, to push passages forward um you know for example like you guys kind of do that i could i might be wrong here you have to correct me but i think this is a, a newer feature where one of them is in a gray box you know like this is a more popular highlight is that new or did i just miss it before that's a relatively new feature and and that's there for audiobooks mm. mainly or physical books so if you didn't have a way to um, get your own highlights into the system uh, this is a, a means to still kind of review the key points from the book, even though they're not your own. It's not as great, but it's still much, much better than nothing. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, I'm like, I don't remember the gray box before, but, you know, <laughs> like I said, we're all overloaded. So sometimes it takes a little while for sink, things to sink into our brains. Mm -hmm. Now, the the thing that always 
baffles me about technology is the way that we seem to think we understand it. You know, we think we know what it is. We, we think that we, you know, like the book is a technology. You know, we think, we don't think of it like that, but we, we think we understand what a book is. But like we've been talking about a little bit here, there's, there's ways for it to grow, ways for it to change. But also what we seem to forget is always when we get lost in those features and we get lost in all of these other things, you know, even though I was complaining about um, the relative speed of the Kindle and all of that, when it comes down to it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It turns on and I can read something on it. And that's, that's the core function of it. And if it can't do that, then of course it's useless. So when you guys are adding features, when you're, when you're figuring out ways to expand, how do you make sure that you're always staying true to your core purpose? You know, do you have like a, a mission statement or a, a measuring stick with which you guys decide things by? Well, that's the fundamental challenge in, in software and product uh, in general. Uh, we do have kind of an overarching vision of what the, the product should look like based on our domain expertise. And when we got into this, we weren't necessarily domain experts, but after, by virtue of working on this for several years, I'd argue we're more knowledgeable than most. Um, so we have that vision. Um, then we get a lot of feedback from our users. Uh, and that feedback can be both implicit uh, by measuring um, areas that get a lot, lot of engagement versus those that get none. The feedback can also be explicit in terms of them saying, hey, I want this. Uh, a lot of talking to customers. Um, and there's that perennial challenge of uh, people are incredibly bad at predicting their future behaviors. So you have to use a lot of um, discretion and make judgment calls as to, yeah, he says or she says uh, they want this, but what they really want, I think, is that. Um, and and fold that into the product. And um, another thing you can do is you can also design experiments to test whether or not people want something. The, the trade-off of an experiment is that it obviously has a bit of a cost to set up, um, whereas a conversation with a user is relatively cheap. But the signal you get from an experiment is much more uh, powerful and believable than uh, a conversation. So there's no magic formula, but it's a combination of all those things, you know, our vision, our conversations, what users tell us, what we can observe users doing, and um, what they what they tell us they want in interviews. And you just have to mix them together. And we'd be lying if we haven't made several mistakes and built things that uh, were, were dead ends, but that's just part of the process. Yeah, that's a seems like a very difficult thing to have to juggle. Um, like if I were to use a company as, a, as an example that really epitomizes the difficulty of uh, balancing uh, doing what's right and doing what everybody says they want without really understanding what they want, I would go back to Evernote. Um, they start out with this passionate, passionate user base and everybody wanted this and everybody wanted this. And they just dedicated themselves to, it seemed like for a while, to just doing all of it. And then it just got to a point where the app was so bloated that everybody was like, I don't want to use this anymore. And then they just started losing users left and right. And now it seems like they're trying to steer that ship back. But man, what a what a difficult process because especially with an app that somebody's using on a daily basis, um, you know, it'd be easy. Like I, I know that when uh, when you and I were first talking back and forth, I had some suggestions on things I'd like to see. But uh 
I don't know that anybody other than me would, <laughs> would care about those features. And I'm fully aware of that. But if you're not able to process that in the same way um, and realize that, well, yeah, this guy wants that, but what about all these other people? And you went and made that feature. You could just waste all of this time for one person, which is what, $5 a month. I mean, that's not, <laughs> not worth the time it would take to build some of those features in. Is this, I mean, you guys, you guys have a democratic process when you do this, or is it more like, okay, you, you and your partner choose, or do you have um, a team that helps you go through deciding things? I mean, what's the process for this thought? Uh, my co-founder, Tristan, uh, at the end of the day, is, owns product, quote-unquote product. Um, so if he and I were to disagree, um, he would ultimately have the final call. But uh, for the most part, it's just... Uh, collaboration and uh, we typically align on the next steps of the product and then you know whenever you make you or other users make suggestions we're obviously logging that in a request list so we can see analytically what are the most requested features and then we can uh, pair that with kind of our um, deeper insight into what we think users truly want and would love if we built and make decisions that way. Yeah, I'm sure some of them are really easy choices, like the um, the recent automatic sync with Kindle Highlights. It's an easy choice. You know, everybody wants that. Uh, just seems like you're like, okay, that one definitely on the top of the list. It was probably difficult to implement, but you know, the pretty much 99% of your user base was like, awesome. Uh, yeah, that one was. Uh, there was a clear signal there. That was, <laughs> there wasn't much product risk there. Those are the good ones. Those are the ones that get you through the other ones, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. So here's here's a question kind of off topic a little bit, but how, do, how does a, a real estate guy end up in this business? Good question. Um, I guess all through high school, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was a web developer. So I've always had an affinity for tech, but I started... Um, at school in 2002, at the bottom of the dot-com boom. Um, and I went to, to Wharton, as you mentioned before. And there, they're very finance-oriented. And just as I started, we saw the beginning of a finance bubble you know, that lasted through 2008. And I kind of got swept up in, in that whole scene. So I think you could say that this is... Rewise is more the path that I was always meant to be on. I just kind of went on like a 10-year... Uh, diversion because I kind of, kind of got sucked into that industry uh, by by virtue of my schooling and then just the aggressive recruiting tactics that exist in that in the finance industry and whatnot. But uh, now I feel like I found my way, and uh, I'm much much happier. It's easy to do, especially when you know coming out of school with uh, college loans to pay. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, where's the money going to come from? Well, I have schooling in this, so let's see. I could do that or I can take a risk on this. Right. And, and before the great financial crisis, uh, you know, the investment banking and private equity world, uh, they're very effective recruiters, especially to young, uh, impressionable kids like myself back then. <laughs> so you get sucked up into the, uh, the glamour of the industry and uh, the money that can be made and things like that. But I, I think fortunately... Our society has kind of moved away from that a lot, and finance has lost a lot of its glamour uh, that it used to have pre uh, Great Recession. Yeah, you're in an interesting position now because you're in the tech industry, so you're you're associated with one side of of uh, the country paradigm, 
and then you went to Wharton, which makes you an, uh, a co-alumni with uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> so you've got two those two dichotomies at the same time going on. Um, it's it's interesting to see how you know, you're from Pennsylvania originally, right? That's right. I'm from Philadelphia. It's interesting to see how that split of of the country has you know gone from. I think when we were younger, it was kind of a you know the West Coast and the and the East Coast thing. You know, maybe because of hip hop and all of that. But now it's like the coast versus the center of the country. We've seen this strange shift, and a lot of it is around. Um, at least for us, uh, a lot of the reason that uh, focuses on California is because of technology, because of you know everything going on, especially in the Bay Area here. Um, when you first came over here, did you come over here because of the tech boom or did you come over here for something else um, related to what you were doing before? No, I just ended up here through serendipity. Um, I had a what I, I now look back on as an early midlife crisis where I left the finance world. Uh, believe it or not, my girlfriend was also in the finance world. She worked for small company called Goldman Sachs. And we both uh, quit our jobs and sold a lot of things and, and went on what we also now call a sabbatical and just kind of drifted nomadically. And uh, after traveling the world for a year, that's actually where I, I read a lot and had the, the spare time to make the predecessor to Readwise as, as just a pure side project. Uh, I just thought it was an idiosyncratic, weird, weird habit of mine. I made it in this uh, flashcard software called Anki and just loved it so much and would talk about it with people and, and gradually, organically, it grew into Readwise. Um, but that's getting off topic. Um, after we traveled for a year, we got back to the US and didn't know what to do next. And we just kind of got pulled by a sense of gravity to California and then up to San Francisco. I would say there is a, a, a sense of gravity if you're open to it, uh, like we were because we were minimalist nomads. Um, that just brought us here. There's a, a dynamism, dynamism at, in San Francisco um, that's hard to resist. And like, how do you how do you think that uh, you know we're talking about the East Coast and the West Coast? How do you see like the difference? You know, especially in the professional worlds. I mean, granted, we're talking about the difference of finance, and now you're in more of a, a technology um, company. Uh, but you know, like for example, when we look at uh, typical East Coast. Ties are still very much a part of the business world over there. Over here, jeans are very much a part of it. That's a very small thing. But having been in both, what do you see as the differences between the two? The work culture is definitely different. Um, I think it's hard to make uh, some firm black or white judgment as to this is better than that, but it, it comes down to the individual. I certainly feel much more at home in the West Coast uh, casual culture where it's focused on kind of what you get done as opposed to um, how you fit in with the, an organization and, and move up politically. Uh, you know, I think humans are still humans though. So you still get um, things that you may not like about either culture on the East Coast or the West Coast. The way I would describe it, this is just me speaking here, is I think people on the East Coast are much more focused on money and financial success as the measure of status. And I think people on the West Coast are much more focused on this uh, more fleeting concept of like power and impact as their measure of status. I think, I think people are still playing status games, but 
focused on different uh, measures of status. And that's interesting because I, what I was going to ask you too is it seems like um, on the East Coast, there is more of a focus on university, getting that four-year degree, getting, you know, whatever, getting that, getting those letters behind your name. Whereas over here, it's kind of far, far, far more accessible to be like, college, eh, I dropped out and I started a company. And that's kind of like, maybe you're more impressive because you didn't need school. Um, and, and like you said, neither are right or wrong. But have you noticed that perception too, that the difference in the value of, of college education? Uh, it's hard for me to say because I haven't been through the whole uh, recruiting ringer out here. Um, it is funny though, the, uh, the notion of uh, dropping out is actually inverted. And out here, it's actually a, a badge of honor and a mark of approval such that people will even put on their LinkedIn, like dropped out of, and of course it matters what school you dropped out of, right? <laughs> dropping out of uh, community college is not the same dropping out of MIT or Stanford. <laughs> but uh, it is funny that you will see that on people's LinkedIn profiles all the time. Yeah, you need a more prestigious school to give the finger to, right? Like nobody cares that you didn't want to go to De Anza. <laughs> yeah, you have to get the social proof of having been accepted to such an elite institution, but then you get the, uh, you know, the feather in your cap of uh, turning your back on them. <laughs> That's the ultimate, the ultimate play. But then, of course, there's the real play, which is actually to step into life and actually like explore it. And I mean, like, like you guys traveled the world. Where'd you guys go? Like, what kind of? What, did you really travel the globe? Uh, we. Our travel was very cliched. We started with six months in Southeast Asia, uh, just doing the, the traditional backpacker routes, you know, like uh, Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam and Cambodia and all those countries. Uh, then we uh, did some sailing in the Caribbean. I never learned how to ski growing up and I always felt kind of excluded from the whole mountain vibe, which I knew I would love. It's very hard to learn how to ski as an adult when you go skiing for a weekend or a week with friends that have been skiing since they were four years old and instructable. So uh, we decided to fix that over a sabbatical and lived for three months in British Columbia. And then we did some more cliched backpacker stuff in South and Central America. And um, one particular place I want to touch on, you said you went to Malaysia. How long were you in Malaysia for? Malaysia, we were in for quite a <laughs> We were there for six weeks because uh, I love to sail as one of my main hobbies, like cruising on big sailboats. And uh, this is a good topic on sabbaticals. We quickly figured out that we just got bored of sightseeing or museums or lounging on the beach. So really what that year became about, and I think this goes to like my proclivity to read, it became kind of like a learning adventure. So we were learning lots of things. I talked about how we learned how to ski uh, in Malaysia because Malaysia is a former British colony. Um, they have uh, some British sailing schools and the Brits are the best uh, sailors by virtue of being a tiny island. Um, so it was an opportunity for uh, me and my girlfriend to see if she also took to sailing because sailing as a couple can be great if both of you like it. Unfortunately, she really loves sailing. So we sailed there for five weeks. Wow. Um, spent a lot of time in Malaysia. Well, one of the reasons I bring up uh, Malaysia in particular is um, earlier, um, I think it was 20, 20, 25 episodes ago, I had on a friend um, who spent lived for lived in Malaysia for years. And one of the things we talked about in there, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, having been there as well, 
is he talked about the difference of, of politics there as opposed to here. Um, he said that his perception was over there that everybody understood that the government sucked. So they just kind of didn't talk about it very much. That politics was far less important to the daily lives of the people in Malaysia. Um, did you have that same perception? There was definitely a general sense of cynicism towards the government. I was there during the exact time that this whole scandal was being uncovered where the prime minister, I guess, had absconded with $700 million wow. in an oil deal. Wow. Do you remember that scandal yeah. in 2015? Um, it had something to do with Switzerland and Goldman Sachs. I can't, I, I don't know all the, the gory details. Um, so there was a lot of uh, complaining about that. There were also, <laughs> from the sailboat, um, you sail by like these giant, really long land bridges. And people would point out and be like, you see how there's a bend in that bridge? Well, they did that because the politician wanted to make the bridge an extra mile longer to um, kick back to the contractor. So there was just this general um, cynicism that the, the government was um, uh, klepto, kleptocracy or whatever. Just broken completely. Yeah, the way I think the way he, he described it, he says it's just like an accepted, this is an accepted reality that, you know, this is just the way things are. Um, and it was like, he, the way he described it in his experience was that it seemed like um, it didn't bog them down, though. It was kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. So we're not going to worry about it. And we're just going to go on with our lives. Um, whereas over here, we're more than, seems like right now, more than willing to tear each other's throats out. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. When, you know, I definitely wasn't there on like a field mission to um, understand uh, all this <laughs> stuff. But I, one of the, the surface observations that really fascinated me was Kuala Lumpur, KL, is very close as the crow flies to Singapore. Um, Singapore is just the bottom of Malaysia. And those two cities cannot be more different. Uh, it's fascinating how Singapore could be such, become such like an economic powerhouse, um, yet it's just a, a city-state uh, like 20 miles away from Kuala Lumpur. You know, in, in going across all these, you know, different places, especially Asia, which I think in, in some ways, I mean, it phys physically is about as far away as you can get from America, but um, ideologically in some ways is very, very opposite of us here. When you came back home, after this, did you look at America differently? Did you see America through different eyes? This might not sound insightful, but not really. Um, <laughs> honesty is honesty. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, if anything, I, I came back with a renewed appreciation for America. I, I know there are lots of things to be upset with, uh, you know, going on at the federal government level or certain state level, but by and large, um, America is still great. And one of the great things that happened is we, we carried our nomadism from uh, traveling the globe to, to the United States. And we nomaded through the U.S. for the next two years. And I don't know. I think, I think we have a tendency to take things that are, we see every day and are familiar for granted. And not seeing the U.S. every day uh, renewed our sense of appreciation for our country. That, that's probably the opposite direction of uh, where you thought it would take things, but well, I think that no, that's the truth. I think that's that's very honest in the sense when we look at look at tourists when when tourists go to other countries, 
how excited do they get when they see other Americans? And it seems like such a ridiculous thing, you know, like, uh, because you don't have anything in common with that person, except that you're from the same country, but you do going other places does make you appreciate what you have and where you come from. And I think that's, that's one of the understated benefits of travel. You know, we talk a lot about the benefit of travel being exposing yourself to new worlds and new people and new way of life. But it also makes you appreciate, like I said, where you come from. And I think that's not appreciated often enough. Um, I, have to, I have to ask this question since we've mentioned um, you traveling the world and we've mentioned Tim Ferriss. Was any of this inspired by that Rolf Potts book, Vagabonding? Yeah. Um, as I look back to the decision to make this huge pivot in my, my life, kind of changing my identity and then going and traveling. Um, some of the books that contributed to that decision definitely started with Four Hour Work Week. And if you read that book, you quickly realize that Tim Ferriss, uh, to use a euphemism here, was heavily inspired by vagabonding. <laughs> so then I, then I went and read Vagabonding. And if you peel back the layer on that book, you can tell that it was heavily inspired by uh, Thoreau's Walden. So I read those books in the succession, I guess, getting like deeper and deeper. Um, so th- those books had a huge impact and really, um, I don't think they, they necessarily planted the seed, but they helped uh, the seed sprout in my mind. And I was like, I-, I had just been longing for a sense of adventure. I started working full time while I was still an undergrad. So I never had that like gap period between graduating and starting to work. And I always felt like I missed out. And if I didn't go soon, my window of opportunity would close. So they really nurtured that. Um, two other books that I read that had a profound impact in, in making that turning point happen. Um, ironically now, because Netflix just came out with the series, uh, her name is popping up everywhere. But at that time I read, uh, Marie Kondo's Life Changing Magic of Tidying uh-huh. Up. That was pivotal because that enabled me to shed a majority of my possessions. And until you do that, it's very hard to, you know, go on long term travel. Um, and then the final book would be Nassim Taleb's Fooled by Randomness, mm. uh, which really made me rethink the finance industry and what I was doing. Um, you bring up an interesting point that, that's kind of been coming up recently, and I'm curious what you think about this. The idea of, um, you know, like, for example, you, you know, like you said, you went to school right away, and then, you know, you got swept up in the real estate world and the finance world. Um, but now you, it took you a while, but now you finally found your way into where you feel like you belong. And it seems like that is more and more and more common, and it probably has been for a long time, to be honest. But what people have been mentioning now is this idea of maybe people need a break here. You know, like after high school, it should be mandatory for a year or two years or three years that kids don't go straight to college. They have to go out and be in the world and figure out who the hell they are, what they want, you know, really actually discover something instead of staying in, you know, because schooling can be this shelter. You're in this umbrella where you don't really understand any of that stuff yet. What do you think about that having done it afterwards? Well, I mean, that's a loaded question when uh, people can definitely get opinionated on this, but I definitely think uh, work and becoming a worker has really, uh, the millennial generation of which I'm a part of has been uh, 
positioned from like age three or four to be a worker and to identify as a worker. Um, and I think now we're seeing the, the effects of that. So I definitely think giving uh, developing minds the opportunity to see themselves outside of um, passing the next test to get to the next level of higher education or doing well in college to get the prestigious job uh, and giving people the space to um, explore the world or books or um, art or something else um, other than just gearing them for the system is valuable. But obviously, I'm going to be um, pretty opinionated there given my background. And I'm I'm on the same page with you on, on the opinionated about it as well. See, I'm, I, I think unfortunately what a lot of people don't understand is really how, this might not be the best word, but we'll go with the word oppressive right now, um, how oppressive the idea of that system can actually be and how how formative it can actually be on your mind and how hard it is to actually break out of that. You know, like for instance, uh, me, uh, right out of high school, I went to a four-year college and then after about a year and a half, I just, I did not want to be there. So I didn't do anything. So I ended up making myself flunk out, but that wasn't the end. And then I had to go to school again. So I went to a different school and then I, I went there for, you know, semester and then I started skipping classes and not wanting to go there. And then I, I stopped going to school. And then I went back again. And then like five years later, I tried it again. I couldn't break out of this idea of like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm just, you know, it's like, I'm bad. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's really hard to actually break out of that. So I, like to me, I find the idea of this like standardized break being appealing because then it takes a lot of that shame and a lot of that um, habitual behavior out of it. And you know, I, I think like I could have personally, I could have benefited from a couple of years just figuring out who I was and what I wanted. You know, it wasn't about, I think, I think when we talk about this a lot, people think, oh, they just don't know what their major, what they want their major to be. I knew what I wanted my major to be. I didn't have a problem with that. It was everything else about who I was that I hadn't figured out yet. And uh, a little bit of life would have definitely given me a little, a little travel, but even just something as simple as, having to go work at a Walgreens every day, give you a little perspective on something. I think that that could be really valuable. Um, I would love to see that happen. I really would. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the system right now makes that very, very difficult for most people because everyone believes that they have to go to a four-year college and get a degree in order to get a good job and start a career. And you know, inevitably, most people cannot afford a four-year college degree, so they have to take on loans. And if you take on loans, then once you graduate school, it's going to be very hard to um, not immediately get a good-paying job so you can start paying that and living your life. So the system, I think, kind of uh, prevents people from taking those that year, a few years off to explore. Well, that's a really good point about the, about the debt, too. I mean, <laughs> I'll be honest with everybody and with you. Um, I didn't even, like I said, I never finished. I never ended up graduating. I just paid off that college loan last year. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. I'm, I'm 41 years old. So <laughs> granted, there was a couple of years there where I was not paying at all because I was avoiding it as much as possible. But that, you know, saddling people with this debt for the, for maybe something that they don't even want to be in just seems barbaric in a way. And, and, um, 
I also think like going back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of still about the school. Even if you drop out, it's about the school you drop out of. That's kind of proof of that system still being reinforced, that that idea still means something. I dropped out of Yale. I was too good for Yale, which means that that still has some, some value. And, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, uh, I didn't grow up building things and I didn't have that, that kind of family, um, you know, work with your hands kind of family. My, my grandfather was, was like that, but I didn't have that exposure myself when I was growing up. I grew up with a single mother. So that wasn't really my exposure, but because of that, I think that I have certain appeal to that kind of world. And so I watched things like, um, on PBS, I remember as a kid watching this old house and I've, I've recently begun watching that again because I, I just find it fascinating watching somebody build something and going, I don't know how to do that. I wish I knew how to do that. And one of the things that came up on that show recently was this idea of uh, because of everything that's going on with, uh, with startups and with everything focused on technology, that the trade industries are barren, that there are huge groups of people that normally would go into the trades, you know, and become a plumber, become a carpenter, um, become a pipe fitter, that these were seen as, you know, valuable trade things. Uh, trade occupations were, were seen as valuable, as socially acceptable. They're no longer as acceptable. So you're getting less and less and less people in these trades. And I, th- I, th- think, I thought that was very interesting too, because I feel like that's part of what we're talking about as well. Whereas, you know, maybe these kids going like, you've got a kid maybe who's set to go to a four-year college, but maybe he really, maybe he wants to work with his hands. Maybe he wants to be a carpenter. Maybe he wants to be a plumber. And that should be okay. You know, like, I think that we've lost touch with that as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think uh, human nature is, is just cyclical and it swings like a pendulum. And I think right now the pendulum has swung too far wide in favor of the college education. I mean, we're seeing a lot of interesting studies come out. It used to be just common wisdom of four-year college education is one of the best investments you could make. If you think about that truly from the perspective of an investment where you put out, say, you know, $50,000, and then you get a return on that $50,000 for the next 40 years of your life, that used to be a no-brainer. But now that that fifty thousand is now two hundred thousand, and now that you're competing against millions of other people with college degrees because everyone is getting a college degree, the value of that college degree has gone down. So now the math is kind of inverted, where a lot of people are rethinking. Well, it doesn't look like college is necessarily such a great investment. It is if you go to like the top ten elite school. Like I don't think that has changed, but uh, for you know the. Uh, for anyone other than those 20,000 lucky people, uh, a lot of the, the college education is being re- rethought. Meanwhile, um, trades, like you just described, on the other end of the spectrum have been completely neglected and supply demand has gone the opposite direction there where there's uh, an undersupply and lots of demand. So my guess is we'll probably see a swing of that pendulum back in that direction, hopefully. Yeah, especially with, you know, like the the impending, you know, everybody's fear-mongering the idea of, of AI right now and, you know, all these jobs that are going to disappear, which I'm not going to say is not true. There's a good chance that a lot of them are going to disappear. But 
we don't have machines lined up to do plumbing. We don't have machines lined up to be carpenters. So I think that we're going to find a lot of people moving back into those, hopefully. That's what I'm hoping. You're going to see that maybe that's where, you know, your truck drivers are going to go when, when you know, Tesla rules the world. <laughs> Definitely. Um, one of the things I like to do at the end of each of these, and we've talked a lot about books, which is obvious because <laughs> you, you're one of the makers of Readwise. And, uh, but what I, what I like to end these is I like to ask for a book recommendation. Like, what book do you think that I should read next? Uh, what was the last book that, well, let me ask you uh, two questions. What was the last book you read that you really loved? And what's something you're, you're thinking about a lot lately? Um, the last book that I read that I loved was actually Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind. That just excellently well put together book. Um, and right now I'm reading The Singularity is Near, which is terrifying. Uh, <laughs> um, what was the second question you asked me? Uh, what's a what's a problem or what's something you're thinking about a lot? I'm thinking a lot about um, kind of what I tried to do with this show is what it's like for people to learn to listen to each other again, you know, instead of, I think we, there's a lot of polar, polarity in this country right now, but nobody's really talking to each other. You know, like uh, I was listening to something the other day and they said there used to be a time in this country when, you know, the, the democratic uh, long haired guy would go out and talk to his neighbor who was a Goldwater Republican and they'd laugh and talk for 15 minutes and then go back inside. And there wasn't this strife between the two of them. So I think that's where my mind is right now is how do we bring people back together, back to the center? Interesting. Hold on. We didn't uh, talk very much about our, uh, our book recommendation algorithm, but one of the interesting things we do is we look at um, the, the books you've actually read as opposed to the books you've purchased and how intensely you've highlighted those books, which it turns out is much more likely to result in a recommendation um, for a book that you'll actually enjoy as opposed to trying to suggest a book that you'll buy impulsively. Yeah, and I have a tendency to do that for sure. (laughs) So I can uh, pull up your recommendations. But um, one book that immediately comes to mind based on our conversation around uh, coddling of the American mind relating to universities and then also um, the discussion of millennials and universities and student debt. Um, have you heard of this book called Kids These Days? No. Uh, about the millennial generation? That's how, so that's, it's about uh, their experience in going through college or them as a generation as a whole? Uh, both. Uh, there definitely is a lot of emphasis on college. Um, it is definitely very leftist and kind of uh, communist, socialist <laughs> leaning, but I think it's a, a very insightful. It was written by a 27-year-old and it's uh, extremely well-written. The prose is, uh, is excellent. Um, you know, and the millennials are going to be the first generation that don't, as a whole, do better than the generation before them. Or sorry, the first generation, like three or four generations. And it really just explores why that happened. Interesting. I definitely have to check that one out. Awesome. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, would you like to, before, before you leave, would you like to tell everybody who you are and uh, introduce yourself in any way that you'd like to and if they want to follow you or follow the company or whatever you'd like to plug, this is, uh, this is your time. Sure. You know, my name is Daniel Doyen and I'm one of the 
two co-founders of Rewise, which is software that helps you uh, remember and use significantly more of what you read. Um, if you uh, like reading, you should check out Readwise. You can go to readwise.io or we're on Twitter uh, at readwise.io. And then my personal account is deadly underscore onion, which is just the, an anagram of my name, Daniel Doyen. You know, one of the best ways to support a podcast is to go over to the podcast app that you're using, especially if it is Apple Podcasts, and take five minutes to sit down and rate and review the show. Just give it a star rating, give it a paragraph letting people know what value you get out of the show. Because that's how we communicate to the world what this show is about if they haven't listened to it before. And it's also how we communicate to guests or possible guests what the show that is inviting them on is about and what people think of it. So please take the time to rate and review us.